0: Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Company on Power Talk, thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And as I continue to traverse the musical landscape of our cultural history, uh, the mid 60s in San Francisco provided an open door for creatives to come through, uh, people that had the audacity to pick up instruments, maybe plug in, ultimately begin to experiment on their apparatus and develop their own sound. And for a lot of people, it turned into not just a hobby, but a livelihood. But this didn't happen in a bubble. It happened because that there were places, very avant-garde places of artistic enthusiasm that nurtured this. And, um, I have had an opportunity to speak to some of the, the, the really great electronic uh, music pioneers uh, in, uh, in and around the Bay Area, and quite frankly, uh, in the country and in the world. And, uh, but they didn't just, they weren't working out of their homes the way people do it today. They were going to places like the establishment that my next guest had, um, the Tape Music Center, which provided uh, a haven for uh, you know, creatives and, and musicians and, and authentic cats to come in and just have a ball and ultimately play some gigs and get some notoriety, and, and it all kind of stretched out from there. And as we move through the annals of history... A lot of this stuff tends to get lost. Uh, Things start at a certain marker, not recognizing that the seeds were planted years before. And at 43 years old, I realize that one of my jobs on on this path is to be able to create a beam of light and understanding and knowledge about how things actually came to be. Ramon Sender, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Ramon, I just wanted to ask you about, um, you know, your when you were before the Tape Music Center. Um, you know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of guys that were uh, guys like Vic Lovell, who uh, was at Perry Lane in the early '60s, and Ramdas was uh, a psychiatrist, or he was in he was in grad school, and um, you know, I, Vic grew up in the '50s in San Francisco, and he said that it was a very violent time for people that were kind of off the grid uh, counter. I I hate that word counterculture, but there was a lot of violence. It was a very, very, very hard time. A lot of crackdowns. Some people would say that even if you were walking home with a flute or a saxophone, you'd get beaten up. Um, Can you just paint the picture of, of San Francisco leading up to you know, kind of the psychedelic 64, sixty four, sixty five range. Like, what what is your interpretation of early Frisco, late fifties, that kind of thing?
1: Well, I mean, you're right. Our uh, psychedelic had been uh, put on the on the list and enlisted, and were no longer freely available. So there was a, always a concern about the, the cops. Uh, they didn't impact us directly at the tape center because uh we were not all using lsd or interested in lsd but uh, i personally was but uh, other other members of our group weren't so it was a sort of a side issue there i don't know if i'm answering your question directly it doesn't matter
0: you just go where your brain no i'm saying but yet before before were you were you part of the bay area scene in the late 50s and early 60s
1: I'm sorry. Would you repeat that, please?
0: Sure. Like, would you consider yourself part of the Bay Area culture and scene in the early '60s? Yes. Yes.
2: Definitely.
0: And what were you? And what? And what was that like? Because, you know, I kind of pick up things with the trips. Well, you know,
1: people were gradually coming around to wondering about psychedelics. One of the earliest events. I remember it was a, a show at, at the committee uh, where we all all of us in the audience were sort of looking around and wondering has, has he turned on, has he turned on? <laughs> and then it went from that to uh, I began to get bored with the our concert format at the Tape Center, and I was looking to do something else, I, I sort of thought, well, I, what, do I really, what do I really want to do? I think I want to do a Sunday morning church in a new type of church. Wow. Uh, maybe we'd sacrifice a cow to Mithras so people would know where their hamburgers came from. Right. But, and I mentioned this to a friend, and he said, well, you ought to talk to Stuart Brand. Stuart's doing a show called America Needs Indians, and he might have some input for you, so I got hold of Stuart, and we, uh, and he said, oh, you want to do a Sunday morning series, maybe, I said, yeah, and I need someone to do the uh, sermon, and he said, well, let's go down to Big Sur and talk to the old man of Gestalt Therapy, Fritz Pearls. maybe he would do your sermon for you, so we went down to... Uh, uh, the Esalen Institute, and I mentioned this to Fritz, and Fritz said, Sermon, are you crazy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, what was this cat's name? Fritz what? What? What was his name? Fritz?
1: Fritz Pearls. He was the grand old man of gestalt therapy. And, wow. And wow. why was for, by grouchy. Anyway, uh, so we spent the weekend and then uh, came back to the city. And then a couple of weeks later, Stewart called me and he said, you know, Keezy's in town and he's talking about doing something he's calling the Trips Festival, which would be a full weekend of the best and most interesting things happening. <laughs> would you be interested? And I said, yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, I, I started collaborating with Stewart on the idea of this weekend and trying to get early things, and we were trying to figure out what groups to invite and so forth, and I knew a group in Berkeley called Open Theater that had been doing interesting stuff, so I contacted them, and uh, by the time we got it together, it was going to be uh, three days with two, uh, two groups per day, and they would be the tape center and open theater and Stewart's American needs Indians. And then, uh, I guess it would be who are the others? Well, anyway, uh, so,
2: uh,
1: in the meantime, keezy got himself busted, right? And he was on the front page of the Chronicle every day. So we could not have paid for better publicity. And he. uh, <laughs> uh oh, let me see what happened next. Well, anyway, uh, the energies were building, and Stuart and I looked at each other and said, we need help. We need someone to do the posters. We need someone to do the tickets. And I said, well, there's a guy named Bill Graham who just did a, a, a benefit for the Mime Troupe. That was a big hit. Maybe Bill would do it. So we called Graham up and he said, sure, I'll do it. And I said, well, how much would you want? Uh, I'm taking $200 out for my fee and Stuart is taking $200. And he said, well, pay me what you think I'm worth when it's over. So indeed he did. He did the tickets. He did the door. He did the promotions. He did everything. He really saved our ass. Wow uh and we had this incredible weekend. Um mainly uh with the Grateful Dead carrying the weekend. The the show by the open theater was good but it was really uh uh created for a small space and people really were not interested in listening. They really were, they, they they did I think they did a uh a masturbation, anti-masturbation lecture by Amy Semple McPherson, which wasn't quite the right thing for the crowd.
0: Absolutely not.
1: I want to... And anyways, yeah, so, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, basically what happened is my each group was supposed to bring in a band, and so I brought in the... Uh, oh, gosh. Who was the band that finally had...
0: Oh, damn. It was a Big Big Brother?
1: They brought in the, the band that finally had that great singer. Who?
0: Yeah, big who brother. Died. In the, big brother in the holding company.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, Janice, yeah. So I brought big brother, but they didn't have uh, they didn't have their singer yet. Uh, so they they weren't so good actually. And and uh, actually, it was our our man in charge who swept him off the stage and put. Uh, Put put uh, the Grateful Dead up, and the main, main the minute the Grateful Dead started playing, the whole weekend came together, and the rest of the weekend was basically the Grateful Dead.
0: Ramon, that and, that is such an important, and I want to be clear about something. <clears throat> I uh, I'm aware of the Longshoreman's Hall Acid uh, Trips Festival, but you're saying a Trips Festival took place at the Tate Music Center.
1: No, 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 no. It took it took place at the Longshoreman's Hall. We, we, we all were participating, but the hall had no PA, and so we had to actually build PA and, and install it, and that was done by Don Buchla, who was the inventor of the Bookla box for us at the Tape Center, which was the first uh, synthesizer on the market, actually. And, and he, Don built this great... PA system and hauled it up to the ceiling uh, with the help of the Merry Pranksters. And uh, that was what saved our ass in terms of sound there. Uh, this whole thing kind of. Uh, local went on then to design uh, PAs for the Grateful Dead uh, and, and also for the work he did for us. But anyway, the whole event. It was in this circular auditorium, and uh, thousands of people showed up. And uh, when it was over, we met with Bill in a small cafe next to the Fillmore Auditorium, where he told us he just signed a contract with the Fillmore to do concerts there. He saw the writing on the wall and realized this was the next big thing. Anyway, so we're sitting there counting the cash, and he he brought it in all these little paper bags. He would just take the cash during the event and throw it in the trunk of his car. And so he's bringing in all these little bags, and we're counting it all out, and uh, it's over $14,000. <laughs> none of us has ever seen that kind of money before. And,
2: oh, my uh, God.
1: Oh, okay. Took my 200 and Stewart took his 200, and then we decided together that Bill had done such a great job, he should get 600. And then we looked at the rest of it and said, What are we going to do with the rest of it? And we decided we'd give it to the merry pranksters because they'd done all the heavy lifting. And so that's what happened with the cash. Uh, I think some of the bands might have been a little irritated that we didn't pay them, but. They never were offered money, and we just let it go.
0: And they were relatively uh, unknown at that time. I mean, uh, it, it was. I want. I just. I need Ramon. I, I th- that story. You just. I've interviewed Ken Babs about eight times. Um, I've interviewed Dan Healy. I know what people. People were passing around jugs, <clears throat> huge canisters of ice cream filled with LSD. People were eating this. I mean, it was a wild scene. But I, I want to ask, I want, what was the, this is the question.
2: I
1: was in the ice cream in in the Keezy truck, and the word went around about that. I think I was probably the only person not stoned, because I I kind of felt responsible. Sure. I I was part of the the main crew, and I thought somebody's got to keep his head together, make sure things are happening. So I was probably the only person there not stoned, or one of
0: them Let me let me ask you um, This is really important Because what I'm trying to get at is um, <laughs> What was before, Prior to the, to the Tate Music Center What was the most avant-garde You know, Mills College had uh, Luciani Berry They had very ex- experimental electronic music Going on there But, I mean, earlier, in the early 60s, what was something that you frequented? You didn't necessarily own it or run it, but it was something that was sort of the seed that led to... Was there anything
1: that... Well, yeah. I mean, what happened was I, I was taking classes at the conservatory, and I decided I wanted to do a series I called Sonics that would be all electronic music. So I'd, I'd, I'd built a small studio in their attic. I mean, it was really basic. So oh, it was my
0: God. Wait, it's called Sonics? Sonic? What? What was, the, what was the name of the program? Sonic? Sonic. How do you spell?
1: S-O-N-I-C-S.
0: S-O-N-I-C-S, I
1: yeah. For the first concert, I invited three composer friends to come into my studio and create new pieces for for the first event and these friends were terry riley oh my god pauline oliveros oh my god and phil windsor so they all came in and made pieces and so for that first concert we had four uh brand new pieces on the concert and then uh once the concert was over i said my god i've I've planned all these other concerts in the series and i don't have any other music (laughs) and uh by then I had connected with Mort Svbodnik, or he had connected with us. Oh my God! And he was teaching at Mills, and he said, "Well, you know, uh, Luciano Berio is going to be on staff. He just arrived, and he's got a suitcase full of tapes from the European studios. Let's talk to him." So we talked to Luciano, and Luciano said, "Sure, you can use any of you can use any of these pieces on your program." So we were in in like Flynn. We had enough music for the rest of the series, and we promoted them. And then we also decided we wanted to do live improvs because uh, Bob Erickson, who was uh, the composition teacher at the conservatory, and he'd also been the teacher for Pauline, uh, he, what was I going to say? It's fine,
0: it's fine.
1: It's he, fine. Was, he was heavy into improvisation, and he got us all into improv- improvising. So we thought, well, on each of these events, we should have an improvisation. So we did. We would um, At some point in the concert, we would all get up on stage and play together, and then for one of them, I brought a tank of goldfish, <laughs> and I said, this is the score. Uh, we'll each sit on one side of, of the tank, and if the fish are high, they're high notes, if they're near you, they're loud, and so forth. So the four of us played the fish, and that became a popular piece that kept being repeated over time. But also then we, uh, Sabotnik was working with the dancer Anna Halperin, and uh, we got to know her, uh, the people working with her, and we invited them to come along and join the improvisations so we had three of her dancers on our program and they were great they were just hilarious and they did very funny things and uh,
0: where did the where was the where did you build did did you you built the studio in the conservatory attic where did you build that little antiquated studio
1: well i took a part of the attic and one night with a hammer and chisel I I created holes in the concrete floor oh to put wooden plugs, and then I could lay down a uh, a two by four for the for the bottom part, and then I uh, nailed it down, and then I created a wall and walled off a part of the attic, which became the studio, and then I started collecting equipment, and I. Had a friend who had some old tape recorders, and I bought them from him. And then I had another friend who built me a small mixer, who worked for KPFA. You know, it's just one of those grab a thing and put it together sort of deal. No, but I just want to be clear.
0: This was the the the, the this was the the building that became the the tape center, or this was the conservatory.
1: This is the conservatory. The, the people at the the, conser- old- the people
0: at the conservatory did, had no problem with you. Creating a studio there?
1: Well, no, they. Uh, I, I sort of. The, the director liked me, <laughs> and, and uh, he was great. kind of fascinated by what I was doing. And what? I, you know, they were getting a free electronic music studio. That's what right. That's right. And, oh my God! This is,
0: no, you're. I mean, I did. Ramon, you are making my year, man. I just. I am. I have a. We have a game on this program called Name That Voice. I don't expect you to know who it is, but I. I've done 2,000 radio interviews. I was transcribing this one last week, and that's when I, uh, that's when you came on my radar. So take a listen to this, and we'll come back.
3: And so we had done some work with with uh, uh, Ramon Sender from the Tape Music Center on the uh, Street in San Francisco, and it was very famous for, for electronic music. There's also um, the... Uh, West Bay or uh, San Francisco Studio for KPFA. Um, They had a room there that they had performances, various kinds of performances there, mostly electronic type music. Uh, The the meme troupe sometimes used the room. And there was uh, a dance center, which was next door. So it was a very creative center. And uh, we plugged in, or at least James Gurley did, to what's called the booklet machine. And that oh, was a symth- one of the early synthesizers. Don Brooklyn, kind of I need to get him.
0: to that cat, man. I love that. I'm obsessed yeah. with that cat, man.
3: Yeah, I don't know where he is now. I think he's still alive. He
0: yeah. is Babs. And
3: Ramon Sender changed his name, but uh, yeah, Ramon is still around, too, although he's changed his name. I, I don't know what it is. But, um, uh, and then Pauline Oliveris, who's who just recently passed away.
0: Hard listening, yeah, deep uh, listening. A beautiful cat. I know her very well.
3: Yeah, yeah. She's, uh, okay. She was really neat, and she was there, but she didn't get involved with, with us. She was, if she was there, she was in another uh, studio, you know, fooling around with these different machines. I mean, they had these weird keyboards that that looked like tuning forks, and you you make a connection with your fingers between these two times, and it would make a sound. A sound, and you could change it with these different dials and panels and stuff. You know, I I don't know much about electronic music, but it certainly was very strange then you know,
2: the you
3: know you could make somebody you know make an instrument cough you know. right
2: could, right make
3: make Make a make a guitar break sound like uh, atomic bombs going on strange stuff and so that was before the, the trips festival the weird thing was that when we got to the trips festival ramon and the tape music attendant was involved but we didn't playing through the machine we just played uh, a, a short set and then we got off um then we started playing you know for uh, uh chet helms who took over the, the family dog
0: all right i heard you i heard you barking there you know who that is no i don't that was my interview with uh the legendary uh peter albin I'm sorry. With who? Peter Albin. He Peter. Peter was part of uh, Big Brother with uh, Sam Andrew. Oh, oh, great.
1: I got it. And
0: yeah. so when he... he when he said that, uh, I completely, uh, I just had this huge flash. I Ramon. I mean, like, who were the people that you? I, I just feel like you were the 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 first cat. Bookla. Bookla. I mean, obviously some of the cats were there too, but I mean was there a forefather of electronic music before you guys in the Bay Area? Or is it true that you were the first no, there one? there wasn't.
1: There was not? No, uh, there this, this kind of jumps forward in time a yeah. bit. Yeah,
0: go ahead.
1: Uh, we started at the conservatory, and after that first year of the Sonics events, I went to the director. and I said, well, it was a big hit. We made a little money. How about a budget for next year? And at the word budget, he screamed and started tearing his hair out. Uh, later, another composer friend of mine said, "Well, you know, he was, he was from Europe. You are supposed to barter. Well, I've never bartered in my life. So when, I, when he didn't go for it, I went to Mort, and I said, look, Mort, you've got a cellar full of equipment. I've got an attic full of equipment. Let's combine them and take it out and do our own thing. And he agreed. And we knew a young man who was working for a construction company, Uh, who was kind of into, he was sort of like our tech. And he said, well, you know, uh, my boss has a a house up on uh, Russian Hill that we're going to tear down at some point, but maybe he would allow you to use it before then if, if you paid the insurance. So he went to his, we said, great. So he went to his boss, we got permission, and we moved into this great old, mansion oh my god oh man and uh oh my god we had a whole year there uh
0: well let's talk about that first of all that is so and this was just called the russian hill mansion that was there a name that you put to it or no or? It
1: was called the san francisco tape music center okay so it was That's the
0: Tate music center before the actual building though it was in a it was in yeah a, yeah got it yeah
1: the building was just the building had no name i've tried to find it I've tried to find a picture of it online, and the closest thing I can find is one that looks just like it, but it was listed as two blocks away. So I don't know. Maybe it was just something that looked like it. But this was actually but a
0: residential place, though this this mansion,
1: a great old Victorian mansion. Got it. And it had a it had a a paneled living room with sliding doors, and then another room next to it. And the room next to it, we put all our equipment. And then on the other side of the sliding doors, we had a room for about fifty people as audience, and so that's where we started with our series that year. And we decided for every event we would invite a guest uh, artist to appear. So for one of them, we had um, oh lord, we had uh, the Mime Troupe founder did an event. And for another, we had the famous uh, poet,
0: oh, Lord, is it like Ferlinghetti.
1: No, not Ferlinghetti, but uh... anyway, he'd written a ma- a mask. Oh, well, Robert Duncan had mm. written a- it to be performed by his friends, so they performed it there. And let's see, who else is one of ours? Anyway, each 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 event had a guest, and and in between the guests. We would play some of electronic music, and uh, we had a pretty good year. We we repeated each concert twice because in those days you could actually get a reviewer to come to your event, and uh, Alfred Frankenstein was the main reviewer for the Chronicle, and he became very enamored of us and gave us great reviews, and then we would repeat the concert two days later and, and get a whole new crowd, and because of the review... And that was working very well. And the the, uh, the year went on, and then we had some people. Uh, most we had some artists move in
2: hmm. to
1: live upstairs uh, rooms, and there was a guy up in the attic, and he couldn't he couldn't get electricity, so we we had him on a long uh, extension cord, and then there came a point where we were going to move. We found, we found this place, 321 Visidero which actually became our new home. And uh, we were in the process of moving there. We'd moved all of our equipment over, and I was just there for one last time to collect the rent and kind of turn the place over to the other people. And he said, well, let's look one more time for where the fuse box is for the attic. So we looked around, and I found a fuse box a subsidiary for the fuse box and there was one empty slot for a fuse and there were some fuses sitting there so I popped the fuse in and we we looked up up the stairs and sure enough there was lights in the attic so feeling very self-congratulatory we walked down he walked me down to the front of the house I was leaving and then we looked up again and there was flickering flames in his window So obviously a fire had started, and he went rushing up to save his stuff, and I, at that point, had to, we didn't have a phone there, so I had to go to the nearest phone at a store and call the fire department, and they came, and um, it turned into quite an event. The flames were leaping into the sky, it was night, and some of our tape music center habituaries came by and said, oh, so this this is the last event you promised us. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, the house was—they they lost the roof basically, and uh, there was a lot of water damage. And the owner, the contractor, pulled a long face and said, "Yes, total loss," uh, and he, he he made out like a bandit on the insurance. I'm sure.
0: So let me, so this, this, uh, I mean, (laughs) I'm looking at like, uh, I'm looking at an interview I did with Tom Constantin, uh, and he, I mean, we're looking at, you know, electronic music pieces as early at the Ojai music festival, UCLA mills college in 61. When, when was the Russian Hill mansion? 61, 62
1: you're asking me for a date.
0: Well, no, because you know what like I we know that the trips festival Longshoreman's Hall was 65. Okay. So, I mean, 60 I mean, when were you I guess maybe when when did you start at the conservatory and when did you when did you decide to inst- I
1: graduated in the conservatory in 62, I think.
0: So, then so you had already built the studio in the conservatory and then so we're probably looking like 63-ish for the Russian Hill Mansion.
1: Yeah, something wow. like that.
0: And can you just talk to the audience and the people that are going to listen to this? You know, and and essentially, the music... This is not like five cats in a band getting on stage. It's one person with a machine generating all types of different sounds. People plugging an instrument into the machine. I just if you could sort of flesh out from just the musical point of view, what was musical about it?
1: Well, these were pre- prepared tape pieces that we would we would play, and then we realized quickly that uh, standard concerts had a visual element, which was people could watch the performers, and we were lacking that, so either we were going to not have it or we would do something else. At that point, I would... I approached a friend of mine who is a uh, non-objective ar- artist, Tony Martin, and Tony, I said, "Tony, we need we need something. We, you know, oh, well before I, I talked to Tony, I had seen a show by one of the liquid projection people,
0: Bill Ham. Was, was it Bill Ham? There
1: were liquid projection people uh, active in the city and. I invited them, first one and then the other, to come and and join us to project their projections during the, the concerts, and each of them came once and then drifted off to do their own thing. Actually, one of them moved to Paris and was there for a couple of years, and then the other one, and then he came back and started his own thing at a theater on California Street that became ultimately a movie theater but anyway so then i approached tony i said tony can't you do liquid projections for us we really need it's really perfect for what we need and i and he said no no i'm an abstract artist i don't do those sort of things i said please please you can become our our uh, director of of light light director or something and we'll 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 scramble around and find you uh, money and finally, very regretfully, he agreed. And then he started doing these great projections for us. They're just wonderful. And they really lit up our concerts marvelously. And then it turned out he, uh, when, when, um, when Graham contracted with the Fillmore, Tony started doing projections for Graham and making good money. So it turned out to be a, a paying gig for him. And, uh, but I, he did us a great service. He 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 lit up all our, all our, all our concerts. It was wonderful.
0: Um, the cat before Tony, was he Bill, was that named Bill Ham?
1: Well, Bill Ham was one of the ones we invited to come and work with us. He, he worked one concert and then drifted off. And then the other guy's <laughs> name was...
0: Yeah. Well, what I want to ask you is, you're talking about, um, when you when you talk about tape music, um, can you explain what that is? Like what Albin said in that audio clip was, "They didn't, Big Brother didn't wind up playing through the machine." He said, "So that's no." The,
1: that, I wanted that to happen.
0: Now I just I want to no, know because my, I I need to get clarification. What is what, what is what for the audience? What is tape music? And then how would a band? Plug in. They'd be playing to the sounds of that of that tape. Can you explain?
1: Well, early on, there were two two different types of of music of this sort. One was called music concrète, right, and then the other was called uh, something else. And we didn't want to be tied down to that kind of thing. And John Cage had used the word this term, tape music. And we liked it because it kind of covered all the basics. So we decided to call it Tape Music. And then we became the Tape Music Center. And we got our own place at 321 Darrow. I, I, I rented that, that building, I think, for $150 a month. And it had it had an auditorium that would seat, oh, 70 people, high ceilings. And it had a high ceilings other room next to it. And I went to Anna Halpern, and I said, Anna, how would you like a studio in the city for uh, $75 a month? She said, sure. So she took that, and then I went to KPFA, and I said, how would you like a performance space in the city for 100 a month? And they said, sure. So I had the rent covered. All we had to do was make enough money from our concerts to pay the utilities, which we easily did. And we were off and running in this great space. And we were there for at least three years, I think.
0: Let me ask you, though. When John Cage coined the term tape music, you said it covered all the basics. What were the basics uh, of tape? It covered
1: anything that was... Yeah, it covered music concrete. It covered whatever the other term was. Uh, Music concrete was popular in Europe as a term. And the other term was God knows what. But anyway... It covered anything where you put sounds on tape And played them back
0: You played them back You put sounds on tape And played them back And then the music concrete Like Georgie Hormel Gordy Hormel uh, the, Like uh, sometimes cat, Jazz cats would Would put the headphones on the other musicians And have them listen to the music concrete And then respond to that You know so it was like they were playing. Yeah, yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, we didn't do that, but uh, it could be possible. The, the The thing was that we were eager to have our uh, have a, a a synthesizer built for us, and we approached this guy Don Buchla, who he he claims he just showed up to copy a tape one day, and then <laughs> when we found out he was he could build things, we kind of grabbed him. Anyway, he, he built us this box that became known as the Bukla Box, yep. and it was, it was a little ahead of the other guy who built one that went popular, I forget the name. Anyway, so we had this box, and I brought it to the, the Trips Festival, and my dream was to plug Big Brother through the box, but that never happened. It was just so, so crazy; everything was happening all at once. So we put the box up in the center, and on the center scaffold, and various people fiddled with it during the weekend. There's one picture of me playing at it, and I think uh, some of the Grateful Dead people played with it. But uh, it wasn't—I I never got to do what I really wanted, which was to put the van through it, and then just very, very slowly move the settings so that the the distortion would be gradually added until people didn't know what was, but people not really realizing it, and then until the whole thing was way out in space somewhere. That was my dream, but it never happened. Anyway, so here we are at this great space, 3200 Visadero. We've got great great reviews from Al Frankenstein. We've got uh, more than enough music to play from Luciano Berrio's pieces, and we were covered. So we had we had a number of great years there. Uh, towards the end of it, uh, I began to burn out. As I think I mentioned, I began to think about doing one, those Sunday morning things. Uh, uh, about the same time, Mort Zabotnik had done it, uh, his record Silver Apples of the Moon, mm-hmm uh, uh re- all electronic recording uh, and he got an offer to move to New York City and have his own studio uh, through well, I guess it was through NYU and he couldn't refuse it it was too great a deal. So about that same time, I was getting more and more interested in moving to the con- country and simplifying my life. So that's what happened. Mort moved to NYU and I moved up to Morningstar Ranch to become a hippie. And at that point I left all of the electronics behind and went back to simple chanting and uh, writing writing pieces that could be learned around the campfire and uh, that sort of thing. So I changed my whole musical thing very very much at that end, and left it all—all all the electronic stuff behind. Although, but at one point, Bukla brought his system up to the ranch, and put the speakers up in the upper meadow, separated quite far apart, and started his beeping and booping through the the underbrush. All these hippies started emerging out of the out of the underbrush, their <laughs> eyes as wide as saucers. <laughs> I think flying saucers had landed actually so that was that was a cute moment in time and but basically uh i was off to the races on my um meditative meditate meditating in the redwoods and um, chanting home and i did going on a i did trip
0: were were you uh so uh First of all, is Buchla is Buchla still with us? Is he still alive? Was who's still alive? D- uh, Don Buchla.
1: Yeah, is he alive now? Yeah. No. He passed away? What?
0: He passed away.
1: Yeah, he passed away some years ago.
0: Um, because I know Pauline left us and um uh what about more? what about Subotnik? Mort's
1: alive and well and living in uh outside new york city and we we zoom together almost every week chatting oh. i was going to say like
0: did you need to be what were you going to the conservatory what kind of music major were you were you uh pursuing composition
1: composition, composition.
0: so i i just want to ask you like i mean we know bands like big brother jefferson airplane grateful dead a lot of those guys came out of the folk aesthetic and they just kind of picked up the instruments as skiffle players and got better over time and made like, careers. But I mean, when 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 the electronic, when the machine first came in, um, did you have to have, I mean, how could you apply what you learned in school to these, the Bukla box? Like, did you have to be, a musician with, or did you have to understand music theory to be able to operate this and generate wild sounds? No, you didn't.
1: You didn't. See, the thing was, there was the, the composition teacher at the conservatory was a very unusual guy named Bob Erickson, and one of the on my first visit to San Francisco when I came out just for the summer, I contacted a composer here and I said who's the best teacher of composition out here? And he said, Bob Erickson. So I stored away the name. When I came back several years later to stay, I looked Bob up and he was teaching at the conservatory. And my first idea was I would just study with him. He took me into taking a full course to get a degree. So that's what I did. I spent three years there getting my degree and studying with Bob. And he was t- he was an amazing teacher. I mean, he could look at he would look at your score, and he would say, "Now that low G sharp is that really what you're hearing there?" <laughs> and, and he you would say, "Well, let me li- let me listen for a minute." And I'd say, "You know, you're right. I don't think that is what I'm hearing there." He was into what became what Pauline Oliveros later called deep listening. Absolutely, he taught you to listen deeply. And Pauline, as one of his students, took that and created a whole program called Deep Listening, which finally moved to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, where she was on finally there on faculty, and they started a whole Deep Listening thing there, and she's gone, but the Deep Listening Institute continues, and it's an amazing thing she created, really. But it's all Bob. Bob. Bob's the one
0: who started it all for us. I, I'm just trying to get at the idea of like, <laughs> like Jake Feinberg could could just. I, I, I maybe the better question is this: like someone like Mort or yourself that had training or had education in the academy, were you able to apply any of that to these? Uh, they they are now somewhat antiquated, but these the things that Albin was talking about the the the, the the tuning forks and the, and the sounds of, and the sounds of guitars making like, I you know, that idea of, were you able, were you able to apply any of the, of the academic knowledge into the tape machine, the machine, the early machines themselves, or could you just be a, any kind of random cat and just, and fiddle around?
1: What I always said is for every year, I was way overtrained <laughs> in, my, in yeah. my youth. Yeah, I did. For every year of training, I had to do a, a year of detraining training myself. So the only real, really good use I got out of years and I—I I mean, I studied with at least four famous composers as a teenager, one after the other, and uh, I don't think I really got much out of it except. Uh, until I got to Bob, and then with Bob, the whole thing opened up for me, and I was able to really begin to listen to what was going on. Prior- so you can get over tra- you can easily get overtrained, and nowadays, if somebody asked me, I said, "Look, if you want to become a composer, study another art form and get your your technique and thrill out of." Um, out of that other art form But approach your main interest Totally open And willing to experiment And forget about the training
0: I love that line I love that philosophy man It's so zen and it's so spot on And yet we live in this Very control based I mean <coughs> um, What were your how, Was your mind How did psychedelics Enter into this this uh, milieu I, I, I ask only because um, If you had a 70 seat theater On 321 Divisadero um, And I was coming to see A show I wouldn't want someone like myself Getting up there And jerking around I'd want to see something sophisticated um, So the performances Were done by Overtrained cats would you say i mean or did you have a night of like where they'd have just jam sessions of people kind of just coming up and being weird i don't know if i'd want to sit through somebody who. No, no.
1: Yeah. i mean our, our our own performances were were carefully planned and carefully done and, and all, all our people i was probably the one most interested in the psychedelics and uh i certainly never got up on stage stone. But, uh, I mean, I, for me, set in, I went by Ram Dass's said set and setting If I was going to drop LSD, I want to be out in the country in a beautiful place, mm. all of that. Anyway, but, I uh, I did get interested in psychedelics, but that, and then it was partially to my early experiences with them that moved me gradually towards living in the country. And, uh, one of the people who interviewed us for the trips festival was uh, Lou Gottlieb of the limelighters who was taking time out from the group after a near fatal uh, plane accident. And he'd been given a job by the Chronicle reviewing concerts. And he interviewed us about the trips festival and wrote a cute, cute little article for the paper. And, uh, but in the process of our chat, he, he mentioned, you know, I mentioned that I'd, I'd lived in community, in a strange community at one point in my early 20s, but that I was interested in community. And he said, well, if you ever get interested again, I have a place up in the country, uh, and there's nothing happening there. Maybe we could talk about it. So when I came back from everything else that was going on, well, actually, after the Trips Festival, I decided I needed to take some time out, so I drove <laughs> yeah. I drove all over to New Mexico and back, visited the only commune I'd ever heard of, Drop City, and uh, also some other people who were friends, and then I drove back, and then at that point, I took my girlfriend and decided... Well, I'd done a two-week retreat up on Mount Tam at one point, and I wanted to show her where that was, so I took her up there, and uh, we were shooed out by the forest ranger, and at that point she said, well, you remember that guy Lou Godley? He said he had a place up in the country. Maybe we could go up there to play Adam and Eve. So (laughs) I called Lou up, and he said, sure, uh, we'll go up, so we drove up together. He had a pocket full of hashish cookies from the famous friend of his, famous for hash cookies. And let's see, it was him and me and my girlfriend and who else? Um, I think it was...
0: Like Albert si- Sideju or something?
1: theater couple who would become friends, mm. the Jacopettis. And we all drove up together and it was apple blossom time and... The trees were in blossom and oh my god the place was gorgeous i said this is it this is where i'm staying so i started living there and my girlfriend was teaching in high school and she only could come up weekends and then uh lou started getting into the act he said you know i may move up here too so he got a the place had been an egg ranch and so there was this egg uh, house to store eggs and he had a Carpenter friend of his renovated so he could move in his Bersendorfer Grand. Took up practically the. There's just about enough room for a Bersendorfer and a mattress. And that's how he moved in. In the meantime, uh, I'm up there meditating in the, the small redwood grove. And Lou would come by with friends and come to the grove and said, and this is our. Our our advanced seminar, (laughs) and I'd be lying there, conked out in the middle of the grove, (laughs) staring at the sun branches. And that was
0: the advanced seminar. So you were deeply ensconced in. uh, Can you (laughs) can you talk about a seminal? uh, um, uh, You said that some of your early experiences on psychedelics sort of gave you. Uh, an understanding that you wanted to become more of a set and setting guy. I mean, can you talk about yeah, it?
1: They were doing a lot for me. They were opening me up to this whole other reality. It was one I'd never experienced before.
0: Can and you de- can you describe it?
1: Well, I, what I realized was that the sun was God and it, hmm. all all religions stem from that one basic fact wow. and if you couldn't understand that the sun was God, you were out in some kind of weird space that was not really true. And so uh, I started off there and went on from there. And, and uh, as we, the Jacopettis moved up and joined us with their, their child, and then Bruce Bailey, the movie filmmaker, was a friend of mine. He joined us and took one of the little side houses to as an editing studio. And then uh, who else? A couple other people joined us. And then the diggers showed up and said to Lou, uh, "If we take care of the orchards and gardens, could we have the produce to feed the?" hundreds of thousands of young people coming to the city for the summer of love. And so Lou and I conferred and thought, well, why not? So they moved in. And when the diggers moved in, the whole scene changed. Because suddenly we went from a quiet, uh, meditative group to these guys who were into building their own structures and uh, out of nothing and uh, basically feeding the world for free. So uh, with the arrival of the diggers, everything went through a transformation. We learned later they had a sign at the free store, their digger free store in the city saying, come up and visit the digger ranch. So uh, we began to get a stream of people, and we went from a base group of maybe 14 to 40 uh, in a month, and then from there to 80 in another month, and the place began to fill up. And not only that, the toilets got clogged, and uh, everything kind of went downhill. And then the uh, the county narcotics guy showed up and uh, looked around and said, "Hey, this is kind of a neat place to drop acid, isn't it?" And we all went, uh, (laughs) anyway, uh, we obviously were on their map from then on. And it went from one visit to two visits to then what was called the, uh, April fool's bust. Um, we got word. There was a guy in jail in Santa Rosa who they sent out to set us up. And he was very nice. He said, you know, I've been set out here to set you up and there's gonna be a bust on April Fool's. So we immediately turned them on, of course, and patted and gratefully and uh mm-hmm. clear the place of any psychedelics so that when the the guys did move in on April first, there was hardly there was no nothing there except oh, well, they they sniffed Lou Gottlieb's leather pouch that was empty and said, Hmm, I think I smell marijuana and <laughs> else i think oh there's one guy who had a an old thing of speed in his wallet he forgot to take out and that was it and that was the bust but um we were definitely on the map from then on i want to
0: i want to read you this it's such an honor to talk to ramon sender not only uh, i mean just your ability to articulate stuff that happened more than half a century ago is stunning to me um I, I just want to read you this. He said the Buchla synthesizer at Mills College was always failed. Oh, well, no, this yeah, is, what
1: yeah. happened is as is we moved. Let me let me just I read want- this. Let me
0: just read this to you, and then and then you can go off. This is from um, <clears throat> this is from. Um, why am I blanking on the
1: guy's name now? When Mark moved to NYU and I moved to the country, we moved the Buchla box to Mills.
0: Yeah. So, so, so this is from this is from Ber- this, this is from the- this is from Bernie Krause when I interviewed him. He said the Buchla synthesizer at Mills was always failing. An oscillator didn't work on the spring reverb, or didn't work, or the filter didn't work.
1: It had always had problems.
0: Something right? didn't work with the Buchla at any given time. I would be there. there was no chance in hell I was going to perform live with that instrument. It was stationary and mostly in the studio. Now that was Beaver. Uh, Paul Beaver, and I mean, that was Bernie Krause and Paul Beaver. Did you did you ever connect with those cats?
1: Well, the, the book club box had problems, and uh, Don was into fixing them. So over time, it pretty much decayed. But then a guy did come along who could fix them, and then he spruced it up for Mills. For so I think it's probably in better shape now than it was then. But. Uh, the Mills Performing Group, what happened was we were offered a grant by the Rockefeller Foundation, hmm. and that grant would include money for a performing group and for the center if we were affiliated with a college. So we, the obvious place to affiliate was Mills, where Mort was already teaching. So we affiliated with Mills. And the Grant moved to Mills, and the Performing Group moved to Mills, and everything went on there from then on. But uh, that's kind of the evolution of things as they occurred.
0: Um, let me. So let me ask you, it was, this is from, did you ever cross paths with Dr. Patrick Gleason?
1: What about Pat Gleason?
0: Do, do you know Pat?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I know who he is, I don't know... I guess I'm not on intimate terms with him, but I certainly know who he is. Well,
0: can you talk about, I mean, because he was there, he goes, it was in the air in San Francisco in the early 1960s. It was one of those moments, everyone was there. By the time I, I arrived at Mills, out of Mills College, Terry Riley had performed there. I performed on the same stage as John Cage, different piece. I did some work with Steve Reich, whose music I still admire very much. I performed with Terry Riley and Bruce Connor film, Crossroads. At the same time I was going out I was doing all this stuff with Jefferson Airplane Um, Can you just talk about You know From your point of view You were uh, A cosmic character You were sort of following the muse um, And then What was it like To have Musicians want Want to participate In this I mean this is a situation when you kind of Would lose control not just through many personalities but just the mere fact that the machines the electronic music that you guys were making was going to only be part of the equation I just wonder like how were you ambivalent at all when you were approached by these because a lot of them were skiffle players a lot of them were not professional musicians they just picked up instruments and started to play
1: yeah well sure I don't know what
0: to say I mean Well you know what it is You know what it is A lot of class And again I'm, I'm. You said you were over What I love about you Is that you said You guys were overqualified And you had to Detrain yourselves The The um The stereotype And it's a broad brush Is like You know Oh Classical cats They look down On other people on other musicians folk musicians they're not i mean in some ways like there was no elitism with you guys even though you you know mort Subotnick. i mean these guys are like you know shaman characters you know and i just i wonder if you could talk about like sort of that non-elitist approach or if you ever did have some sort of snobbery and if so how did you kind of drop it
1: oh i'm not sure i understand the question but steve steve reich and i Got our MA at Mills together, so we, we drove every, every week out to a seminar with the, the grand old man there, uh, the Frenchman, what's his name? The
2: grand
0: old man. Who is this cat?
1: Oh, he's, he was their main, main guy at Mills every other year. Right. What was his name? I'll
0: he, look it up. Go ahead, continue.
1: Anyway, uh, we, we learned nothing. It was a, a nice time to chat with him, and but he he was not really teaching. I mean, after Bob, after Bob, uh, after Bob's teaching, uh, it was a real come down. But I I respected him, and his wife said, "Listen, stay for lunch one one day a week, and we'll sit in the garden and talk Italian because my grandchildren are growing up in Italy, and I want to keep my Italian up. We'll feed you lunch." <laughs> and we'll chat, and I'll pay you 20 bucks.
2: Oh, my gosh.
1: There was this great lady. Uh, she was a, what's called a de uh, which is a, a, a kind of a speaking, somebody who speaks in, uh, rather than sings into a, a program of, of some sort. And uh, oh, I can't remember uh, her husband's name. I can't. And he's, he, oh,
0: damn is it robert anderson no no that's it no
1: the one of the most well-known of the, the 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 group called the the, C, the six and he taught at mills every other year for years anyway so steve and i used to drive out together for the thing and, and we got to know each other and we were living one hill apart on in the city and uh uh, everything seemed pretty good, except later he kind of, kind of, I guess, didn't like something I did. Uh, I, I had a tr- problem with a, a girl I was with, and he thought I mistreated her, and he kind of put me on the back burner. And that, that, from that point on, he's he's really not been willing to talk to me. So that's been going on for years.
0: I'm sorry to hear that.
1: Yeah, well, not his issues. He's become a he's become a very, uh, uh, he's become a very, what's the word? A Jew whose practices. He's a very Orthodox, traditional Jew. Jew and
0: uh, Orthodox Jewish. So, yeah. What? Orthodox Judaism.
1: Yeah. Anyway, we're, we're not on the same page anymore, but, uh, at that time, we were we we were friendly, and we went to seminars with. I'm trying to back into his name.
0: I'm looking at Bob Erickson Mills College. So this was before you're talking about. This is before Erickson, and he was a Frenchman.
1: Uh, Bob was never at Mills.
0: Right, Bob. I'm sorry, Bob was at the conservatory. So, I'm yeah, just, yeah, um, sorry. This, yeah. Excuse me. It's okay. We're me, we're, we're gonna get it. I mean, this is so insane. So, I want to ask you a question. You're, <laughs> after you graduated and had, uh, did you graduate the conservatory, or did you just hop out of there?
1: Yeah, I got an I got an I got an uh, I got a B, 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 a bachelor of music. The conservatory and I got an M.A. for Mills, which is totally worthless, but that's
0: okay. Okay, so so, but I'm just so that was so when you went to Mills, this professor whose name escapes you was not, even though he was head faculty every other year, he was not helpful for you guys outside of his wife.
1: Because his his idea of a foreign analysis class was to have somebody bang a a piano reduction of Boris Goodenough on, on the piano while he translated the text. That was form and analysis for him Form and that, analysis With Bob Erickson Was a very deep Detailed study of a, of a work So he he was just hanging in um, Oh I'm so
0: sorry I I should have nailed this It's Darius Milhew.
1: Thank you so Yeah that's
0: much. what Dude you know what man Like I, I that's Shame on me for not knowing I mean dude You know that's So Darius Came up short For Ramon Sender
1: <laughs> As a teacher He what? I mean he just didn't do it for you. Didn't do anything for me. I mean I respected the man. He was he was in very bad shape physically and in a wheelchair and in pain, so you know, you have to respect him. And you have to respect his career, which is amazing. But as a teacher he was lousy, unfortunately. There were other people who studied with him who gave him high marks. Maybe he was in a different frame of mind when he when they worked with him or whatever, but
0: Ah, Lord I was going to ask you about The um, Again this happened so fast You went off to Morningstar by 68, 69 Yeah Yeah because I mean Mort was doing Records on Columbia uh, By the I think also it was uh, Not NYU it might have been Columbia University I could be wrong About that uh, that he got the 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 opportunity to because they did a lot of electronic tape
1: music Coming out of that I think it's offer came from NYU But okay
0: Okay um, When did you uh, Did you ever see um, Well I guess you, you, you So you you did the Trips Festival But then there were a lot of other Trips Festivals Did Outside of the Tate Music Center Um. Were you did you perform outside of that facility ever, or did you see other people be able to pull off? Were there other venues that housed electron tape music concerts?
1: Well, as far as I know, there were none. No other none other at the time. Individual composers were beginning to
2: pull together their own studios,
1: but but
2: uh, no, I don't
1: I don't remember anybody. I mean, there were other quote tape other type festivals that I knew nothing about, or that maybe spun off in various ways. I don't know. As I said, there came a point where I was just up in the country.
0: And I just curious about, you know, ultimately, how did you, I mean, talk a little bit about once you got up there, I mean, aside from doing, having some sort of tra- transcendent meditative practices and the cat from the limelighters, Saying to the to the people, this is an advanced seminar class. Um, how are you?
2: Well,
1: I realized yeah. that as a composer, I had a tremendous opportunity to to build music into this what I figured was a new uh, uh, what's the word a new community that we were forming. So I was busy creating chants that could be learned. Around the fireside, or songs that could be sung easily. I I had an auto harp that I I tuned the strings open and took the machines off, and anybody from the age two on up could could strum it. With a, with <laughs> no, a
0: but I mean, how did, how did you? I mean, you're sitting here today talking to me, you know, swatting away my questions with ease. Seventy minutes in, uh, once you pivoted out and became. Somebody who became more into mindfulness and and seeking expand, you know just enlightenment through meditation. How did you wind up singing for your supper? How how did you how what did you do for to bring in money?
1: I I had one piano student in Sevastopol, and uh, I also had a little money saved up, not a lot but a little, and I was I, I managed to eke it out.
2: There was, there was, there was, we
1: had, we had pretty cheap food sources. Occasionally a guy would come by with a crate of fish he caught, and uh, uh, Lou would treat us to a sack of brown rice. (laughs)
0: uh, Dude, Lou, he must, he's not still here with us, is he? What? Is he still alive or no? Lou, no, he died. Oh, Lou, man what, Lou Gottlieb, man He was like an angel man. He came from the sun, man He came to find you
1: Yeah He was a great Great friend
0: What were some of the albums That you Can say Were Heavily influential Precursor albums to every Silver Apples Like that's in That's, you know Ingrained in, in Musicology Also Indeterminacy by Tudor and Reich playing in different rooms um, together. Uh, and I'm, I'm not even doing justice. There's what were some, or it doesn't even have to be in the bag of electronic music, but what were some albums in the late 50s that you, that really caught your ear and sort of gave you the, the impetus to pursue a career in, in composition and music?
1: Well, an I, I early. An album, but an early piece that got me interested in electronic music was Karlheinz Stockhausen's Kazanga der Junglinger, (Song of the Youth). Wow! That piece knocked me for a loop. And as I was hearing that piece, I, I said, "I got to get into electronic music. This <laughs> is really." In terms of albums, I don't know what to say.
0: Um, or were you well, listening to like, I mean, because I mean, Milhue uh, was instrumental w- in a better time in his life with guys like Dave Brubeck? Uh, I mean, were you into jazz at all? Did you, because I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. I, I yeah.
1: was ahead. living in New York as a young man. I'd go to some of the concerts and I'd go down to the, what was the place called, where some of those guys played. I, I heard, what's, what's, who's the guy who plays two saxophones? Oh, my, to- dude, we,
0: we, we have to do set two, Ramon. You're talking about Ross Roland Kirk.
1: Yeah, I used to go to listen to him, and are the guys who hung out at the
0: what is it called, the Blue Note, or no, the the, the the five spot or the half note? Half note, maybe. Oh my yeah. god! Wait, hold on, Ramon Sender. Did, I I detected New York. Are you from New York? Are you a New York cat or no? Where are you from?
1: I grew up in New York City.
0: Yeah. Oh my god. I mean, oh my up. dude, I cannot. But so in uh, you're telling me. You were seeing well you you were also seeing Rasan before he was Rasan. He was just Roland Kirk at that time. But yeah. I mean
1: I yeah. I grew up in New York City, you know, interested in music and I would go places and hear people and you know, I was a young man with musical interests and I would listen to everything I could get older. But I was born in Spain and my sister and I came as as refugees from uh, Franco Spain, and then grew up in an American family. So our our beginnings were a little odd, but uh, basically we were brought up in a fa- an American family in New York City. Who was and the mother was very concerned about making sure we had great education. So we were very overtrained.
0: Your biological parents never made it with you. You came over with your sister. That was it.
1: Now, my father brought us over and then left us with this woman and went to Mexico because was, he was dead broke. And he thought maybe he could get his there was money for refugees in Mexico. And he was hoping he could get, start a business and then get together with us. But actually, I don't think he ever really wanted to get together with us because we were sad reminders of his wife, who our mother, who had been assassinated by Franco. Because he was, she was married to him, who was a famous uh, left-wing journalist, and so they, they couldn't kill him, they killed his wife.
0: Why couldn't Why he, couldn't they kill him?
1: They couldn't kill him. They killed his wife because yeah. he was, he was not uh, within the Franco lines. Oh, he was, God. but but she was caught behind the lines. The last thing he said to her was, "If things get tough." go back to your hometown, nothing ever happens there. So she took us back to her hometown, but it turned out to be in the hands of the fascists. And very shortly she was imprisoned in a cell with 14 other women in a cell designed for four under horrible conditions. And they were just taking the women out one by one and shooting them. And there just came a night where they snatched her baby away from her and she knew she was next. And the next day they took her out with two other women to the cemetery and shot her. Oh, my God. Anyway, we were
0: survivors
1: of of shit. But we grew up in a very, uh, what would be the word, upscale family. And the mother was a, a writer. She actually wrote a book about how we came to her. It's. Uh, kind of an interesting book.
0: What's the name anyway, of it? What's the name of it?
1: The name of it is "The Sun Climbs Slow," and it's a novel novelized version of our
0: what what um, part I mean, of what part of the city were you in?
1: We were in the Upper East Side.
0: Yeah, you were having a ball. Tell me that you went. Were you going to the original Birdland to see Bebop, like when you were a teenager?
1: Yeah, no, I went to Birdland. Sure.
0: Well, who did you? I mean, are you kidding me? Who did you see there?
1: me to remember things
0: dude better. I i mean Ramon you're below I had no I, I could I'm like does this cat you had like a New York accent a little bit but I was like I mean dude I've I mean yeah, I mean bird
1: names I mean, I, I'll tell you
0: yeah oh I, I mean Philly Joe Jones of Charlie Parker uh,
1: you know uh, Parker, yes. Charlie Parker yes. you saw
0: bird yeah
1: I, he- I heard him I, I, I
0: know him no I mean I know you know but I mean did you see him
1: live Live at Birdland,
0: yeah And you saw Miles Yeah Can you talk about Did that subculture? Obviously Did that music Did you gravitate to That kind of music Or did you And did you recognize What an absolutely hip subculture it was I mean I I oftentimes think back I mean I'm 43 I was born in 78 I, I mean I'd like to think That if I was hanging out With Ramon Sender I'd be hip enough To be going to these places In the late 50s Early 60s But I don't know I mean, how did you even get hip? It was popular music, I guess, right? I mean, how did you even get hip to a place like Birdland?
1: Oh God, I don't know. It just—it was in the—it was in the air.
0: <laughs> it was in the air. Thank you. That was it. Yo, w- before we wrap up set one, I just have one final question for you. When did you meet the Merry Pranksters?
1: I met the Merry Pranksters during the. Trips Festival.
0: You were not you were not privy to Palo Alto or Perry Lane or anything like. So the first time that even the was the first time you heard Kesey's name was when he was on the Chronicle front page, getting all the publicity. Or or when did you? He uh,
1: he got busted down at the Peninsula, and I heard about that. And uh, trying to think, when I first met him. There was such a crowd around him, you know. Always. And I just wasn't into kind of hero worshiping, and uh, so I kind of kept my distance. But I admired the guy, and I certainly loved his work. I loved his writing, and just exactly when I keyed into it all, I don't know. But.
0: Uh, and and the- and did you did you did you get? Uh, did you know Owsley? Did you get your acid from Owsley?
1: Uh, I got it indirectly through Don Buchler, uh, who was getting Owsley acid through his connection to the Grateful Dead.
0: Okay, so because <coughs> uh, okay, so, cause Owsley was the one making it, so he, so you knew Buchler and Owsley would give Buchler acid and, and he'd give it to you.
1: Wow. Wow.
0: Um,
1: everything was sort of interconnected, you know, it was just it was that sort of time.
0: I just wanted you to talk a little bit I mean, before I let you go, even though I, I know you pivoted out and, and went to Morningstar and <coughs> and uh, and are probably still here because of, of of your of the yogic path that you took. What would you like people to know about the significance of that incredibly fertile time in music, approximately 62 through 66, when electronic music was burgeoning and really at the forefront of this large sonic palette of music? You know, it was before the Summer of Love. The real Summer of Love was 66. By 67, all the invasion of outsiders kind of tainted everything. But what would you like people to take away from that period of time, and how did it impact modern American music and the world?
1: Well, we were all, all the different types of musicians were interacting and, and listening to each other and learning from each other, so it was a time where our minds were open to new things, and people were willing to, to listen and to, to participate, and and see where the next things were going to happen. So there, there, there were no demarcation lines between the different types of, of music or musicians. People were just out there listening to each other and willing to le- learn. So I'd say it was a time of learning, of, of interacting, and uh, nobody had carved out a, a space for themselves and said, this is my space, don't come here. Uh, and I keep hoping that's the kind of openness that we will continue to have as a culture and as a nation.
0: How, how you think we are still continuing on that path or do you think we need a, it has to cyclically come back? I, I, I have a feeling, everything you just described is somewhat anathema in today's socio-political climate. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact, I guess maybe the better question is, How has the significance of music changed since you were there? People were listening. People were taking it in. And and society was being dictated, in a lot of ways, by the music and by what the messages were coming from the music. And that's no longer the case. And so I just wonder if you think that it's still alive today or that it'll come back around
1: again. Oh, I think it'll come back around again. People... You know, thank God people learn, and they, when something has been lost, they look for it again, and it will come back in a new generation. I have a lot of faith in the younger generation. I think their politics are good. I think their attitudes are good, and I think they're going to save our ass, and hopefully save the human race, because if they don't, the planet's going to wipe us out. As of now, the human race is an anathema to the planet, and unless we get our act together, the the planet's gonna. What, what to say the hell with you? I'm through with you guys.
0: You know, uh, can we do set two? Can we do another part?
1: Do another part?
0: Yeah, no, another session. Yeah, I got some more uh, stuff that I didn't get to, but we've been cooking here for eighty.
1: Well, if you want, eighty sure,
0: minutes. It, it was great. It was. You are an absolutely iconic, legendary figure. Uh. And your
1: thing, I could. Is, is I wrote, I wrote something at the Tape Center, which was kind of a position paper, I guess you'd call it, and it sort of summed up what I saw the role of the composer in the world at that time was. I could, I could send you a link to it. Yeah. I guess. Oh, I, I
0: would absolutely be honored. Do you Me- have
1: a? Do, do you have an email you can give
0: me well we, we've been we've been communicating on email that's how we got together you know um
1: so okay so let's let, right, yeah so I'm,
0: I'll, I'll, I'll email you um to set up a time for for part two and then you can send me back a link to that that position paper yeah
1: can give me a kind of a week or two or something to but, I, I'm I'm into a, a lot of stuff here. I, no, no,
0: no. I, we'll we'll let this breathe for a minute. It's, 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 absolutely, no no problem. I the one the only other thing I wanted to ask you is. Uh,
1: thank you for having me on. I've enjoyed it, and uh, we'll talk again. In the meantime, I'll send you some stuff. I just finished a 35 page uh, book that I'm in the process of getting getting a company to print for me okay well I want I
0: want to ask you I want to tell you something I've just this is really important and I just want to throw it out there for you um, I've, I've just written in the last two years after ten years of sweat equity and 2,000 radio interviews I've just published four books I, I have an independent I have a publisher out of Portland because you know what you can wait for you'll be waiting for years for a publisher I have that's
1: a- why I don't use publishers that's why I publish myself
0: Okay, well I'm letting you know If you're interested in having it coming out much sooner than late I don't know if you're going to self-publish or not But um, my, my publisher is, been, is phenomenal I've
1: been self-publishing for years Of course I'd be interested in a publisher But I don't like waiting two years Which is why I do it no, this
0: No, I would I Well anyway, we can talk about that One more thing before I let you go Could you connect me with Mort Sabotnick?
1: I can give you his his
0: email or whatever okay i mean i that I just wanted to uh be able to to do some kind of uh formal interview with him as well uh and maybe you could talk to him and see yeah I could try I
1: could send someone to him
0: yeah just uh uh it would be an honor and it's a whole new um sort of portal but uh yeah we got we got a lot to do Ramon so uh but it was really an honor and uh you made my day, man. Thank you so much.
1: Glad I'm glad, and I've enjoyed it, too. And we'll be in touch.
0: Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Bye, Jake. Bye. Wow. Ramon Sender. Thank you to Steve Kaiser. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. See you later. <laughs>